Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning. Welcome to 3CR. It's Friday breakfast. This is Green Life Radio. Oh, hello. Um, good morning, everyone. This is um, Jacob. And I'm Zane. Um, what's going on today, Jacob? Oh, uh, well, could you, could you just shut that door behind you. Oh, sorry. It's a bit unprofessional to mention these things on the air, but... Alright, so, yeah, what has been actually happening... Uh, in terms of, um, there's been kind of a lot of recent kind of sort of um, things that have been sort of an, um, been kind of came off uh, out yesterday in terms of in relation to education. Mm-hmm. Um, Malcolm Turnbull has actually sort of um, has proposed that we um, that they would cut all federal um, funding. What? Oh, yep, cut um, federal funding to or um, to public education, while still continuing to um, to fund. Um, private education and through the federal system. Um, their sort of rationale for this is that because they're moving, um, there was another proposal um, that they would move to a sort of income kind of mo- um, income model where there would um, a state kind of income model where basically only the state, um, the state, all the all the um, all the funding for schools would be the responsibility of the state, and they don't want to push any sort of federal funding towards public schools. Mm. This is so riddled with problems. Um, so, first of all, I saw Richard Dennis commenting on this yesterday, and he made the point: if the states are going to charge, are going to set the income tax rate themselves, does that mean there's going to have to be a separate, like Australian tax office for every state administering the eight different tax regimes? Uh, I'm I'm not like an expert on like tax, but the sort of implications of this is, um, you know, with the whole Gonski funding kind of program, you know, this is basically Malcolm Turnbull's um, reform is pretty much going against any of the whole um, Gonski funding model, which would have mm. been which would have funded schools on the basis of need. Um, the implication of this is basically, you know, a lot of a lot of states, um, um, a lot of sort of because. Because um, in terms of how state funding is allocated, um, state funding usually always goes into sort of say the major kind of cities. Like it's always usually contra- and other sort of areas get left behind. And without sort of federal sort of um, funding, um, without um, any sort of oversight for federal funding intervening in that process, it's a lot of schools are going to miss are going to miss out that mm. otherwise would have gotten support from the Gonski program, especially in like you know rural, violence or very low socioeconomic, well-off areas. Yeah. That's right. And one of the analyses that I saw of the Greek debt crisis says the whole reason that that's happening is that because Europe is not a proper economic federation like Australia is, 
if Europe, if the whole EU zone was a proper economic federation, you'd have the sort of EU-wide redistributive economics that ensures there is a standardised level of healthcare and education right across the EU, which is basically what we have now in Australia. There are inequalities, but in general, in theory, we've got a fairly standardised system of healthcare and education right across Australia. And, and what this reform will do is that entire states like Tasmania, which are poorer states, which are not an economic powerhouse that brings heaps of money into the economy, the statewide their whole education system will suffer. And then, as you say, rural schools will, will suffer even further. Yeah, that's exactly right, Zane. So um, in, in the, the case of the European Union, um, like this is sort of what happened to, to Greece, you know, and it got into all this crippling debt. When you, um, the European Eurozone basically works that only the countries sort of like in the north, the north of Europe, mm. um, like Germany, um, France, are, are always sort of emphasised over the, and all, all the countries at the below, like in all the south countries, like, you know, um, Greece, for example, are always being sort of left out in terms of the sort of equitable kind of um, outcomes to like, you know, education and health. Hmm. Uh, massive backwards step. And what's the, uh, what are the teachers unions going to do about this? So I suspect they're well, not going to be too impressed. I, I have not, well, I have not, well, this only came out like, um, this news about, um, Malcolm Turnbull's kind of reform, um, only sort of came out yesterday, but I mm. did, I'm pretty sure I did hear a report that, um, the Australian Education Union have condemned this sort of change, um, and of course will hopefully be mobilising, but of course no action at this point has actually been taken because it's all really at talk. Um, but of course another thing that's happening in education, this would be more related to, um, national, on the national territory level, is um, there's actually been um, sort of a report given that the government could make 500 more million more dollars if um, if they lowered the hex debt threshold to 42,000. Um, mm-hmm. Right now at this point it's um, 55,000, which it, which is I think a, a, I believe education should be free, but that is a reasonable amount. But if they lowered it to um, 42,000, that would basically mean that people would have to start paying debt much sooner than. Mm. Um, and of course, it's it's it raises the question, you know, um, if if it's such an issue that um, uni graduates aren't paying back their hex debt. Why didn't you, why did they actually work on actually, um, investing in actual jobs? Like, you know, increasing the wages because, you know, 42,000 is not a relatively high wage at all. Yeah. Um, it seems they're not actually, if they if they want to make actually, if the government was interested in actually making more money off debt, besides the point that I don't think we should have a debt, yeah. um, you know, they, it would be it would be great if they actually look towards actually investing in jo- jobs and industry and um, increasing the wages as opposed to hmm. as opposed to trying to find ways of um, attacking people at the bottom, which is generally what the, the Turnbull government has always done. <laughs> yeah, and the the interesting thing about that report is it it spoke about the the casualisation of the workforce as though. Oh, well, everyone's working casual these days because, I don't know, people just enjoy working casual, and that's fine, but they're, they're wriggling out of their hex repayment duties because they're all working these casual jobs. So, hang on, how many casual workers actually 
choose to be employed casually. I'm casual. I don't get uh, sick leave. I don't get holiday pay. I don't get I don't get annual leave. And I would like those things. I would prefer to be employed full time, but the opportunities are not there. And that's what we've seen over the past 30, 40 years, an increasing casualisation and contractualisation of the workforce. It's not the workers that are asking to be casualised. And then the Grattan Institute turns around and goes, oh, well, all these workers are choosing to work casually and they're wriggling out of their hex repayment duties. Yeah, it's, a, it's like um, we've... Um the casualization of work is really sort of like a kind of worrying thing because um, when it comes when on the subject of like university graduates, a lot of university graduates are actually struggling to find any kind of permanent job, especially if you're say an arts journalism kind of student. Um, they re- most of the time they actually I know quite a lot of people who after finishing their degree still work casually at McDonald's or something. Of course, the wages at McDonald's mm. are incredibly low. Mm. Um, and yet you're absolutely right that you know no one would choose to work casual. I mean, unless some people some people like the um, the idea um, the benefits of being permanent casual because you get you get the um, the job security with all the benefits of the of of having a ca- um, the wages being of the, ca- the rates of um, wages being higher because you know if you're a casual you get paid more than than if you're per- um, than if you're a non-casual, but yeah otherwise no no one re- w- everyone would prefer those benefits as you'd say um, said um, as you say Zane because the, ca- the ca- increasing casualisation work is definitely like a huge problem. Yeah. So did you um, another thing on on topic? Um, did you um, see the the um, the late what the whole latest um, for ASCO with um, the Daily Telegraph? I did. I think we should wait to talk about that. Oh yeah, we're, uh, we've got all morning. Yeah, uh, let's let's take our time and yep. breeze breeze through these issues and yep. at a at a casual rate. Yeah. Uh, yes, I was deeply offended by the Daily Telegraph's rantings, uh, their their feigned shock about invasion this week. I, I think we should uh, leave enough time to talk about it properly. I'm going to. Go next door and see if we can get Barry Goff on the line, and uh, Barry's going to talk to us about the the hundred year anniversary of the Easter uprising mm. in, in air. Alrighty, so you are on Green Left Radio Friday Breakfast, and on the line this morning we have got Barry Goff, uh, who is a ALP Left member and active uh, member of Earth Worker the Earthworker Cooperative, and were a, a long-term um, part of the Connolly Association program on 3CR. So welcome, Barry. Welcome, Barry. Good morning, Zane. Yeah, it's good to be on air again. Yeah, welcome back. Uh, we've got Jacob in the studio as well. So. Hi, Jacob. Uh, okay, so if you could tell us a bit about the, the Easter uprising in... Should we say island or or air? Oh well, in well, air, of course, is uh, a uh, just a, a Gaelic name for island, mm-hmm. and I suppose it's a, a bit of a fudge over uh, the a twenty six county independent state in a thirty two county uh, island of Ireland. But uh, yeah, so uh, it was certainly in Ireland, is how it would have been was referred to, mm, okay. and yes, it came in the context of. Uh, all the uh, huge 
social and political upheaval of uh, Europe of the early 20th century. There'd been uh, a very big general strike in Dublin in 1913, uh, led by uh, two prominent unionists, uh, Jim Larkin, of the uh, Irish General Transport Workers Union, and James Connolly, who was uh, very involved in uh, organising workers in uh, the uh, the mills, especially in the in the uh, the northeast in Belfast, uh, where he was living at the time, and out of that, uh, in order to defend the workers against the attacks of the police and the bosses Sturges, was formed a thing called the Irish Citizens Army, uh, formed by uh, by Connolly predominantly as a defence force for uh, for striking workers and picketers, and at the same time there were uh, Militias, I guess you'd say, these days being set up all over the place in the uh, in the um, the south of the country were a group called the Irish Volunteers, and up in the north was a group that called itself the Ulster Volunteers, that brought a huge amount of firearms into the country uh, in uh, about 1914 to oppose nationalists and what was at that stage referred to as Home Rule. So in the middle of the uh, the First World War, uh, a war that was being fought, according to the PR, for the rights of small nations, hmm. um, Irish nationalists and Irish socialists uh, came together, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizens' Army, and at uh, Easter uh, 1916, uh, Monday the 24th of April, uh, the actually the... Uh, the first uh, anniversary eve of Anzac Day in Australian terms, uh, they uh, took over key posts in Dublin and uh, read the uh, the proclamation of the uh, the Irish Re- the Provisional Republic and uh, took up arms against the, the British occupiers. Wow! And so, how long? When when was Ireland first invaded? Oh, well, you could probably go back to uh, the 8th century, I guess, in terms of the uh, the English invasion. Hmm. And uh, I describe the difference between the Irish and the Scots as being that after Culloden and when the uh, the Scottish clan system was broken by the British, uh, the... Uh, the ability to, or by the English, the ability to organise and fight the English was really broken at that stage. Uh, whereas in Ireland, uh, even though the the traditional clan structure and you know people would talk about the the kings of Ireland, etc., even after that was broken, there was a a uh, an ongoing uh, opposition that was that uh, continued against uh, the English occupation. And interestingly, some of that came, and a lot of that came from uh, people who'd been uh, effectively moved to Ireland by the uh, the British. A lot of the uh, the uh, non-conformist Protestants in the north of Ireland, um, Presbyterians, uh, people that had moved there from Scotland after the uh, the uh, the English victories in Scotland if you like, Mm. Uh, a lot of them were uh, the driving force in the late 18th century uh, to um, build an independent island. And uh, one prominent name, some of your uh, 
listeners may have heard of was uh, Theobald Wolf Tone, uh, one of the uh, the um, the revolutionaries of uh, of 1798, and uh, and they were predominantly um, Protestant, and uh, and um, from the the north of Ireland, so the uh, the sort of story that gets put around by the uh, um, the pro-British side, uh, what some people refer to as West Brits, you know, Irishmen that would really prefer to be British, mm. is that oh well, it was all religious sectarian uh, Catholic nationalism, and nothing could be uh, further than the truth. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, the History of republicanism right through from uh, 1798 through the Young Islander movement in um, in the mid 19th century. That uh, a number of the uh, the um, key members of that uh, subsequently uh, came to came to Australia uh, as uh, as um, transportees. Uh, uh, a lot of them to Western Australia. Uh, they also were uh, the last thing on their mind was sectarianism and religion. It was about uh, rebuilding a nation that was genuinely independent. Mm. Yeah, and because right. uh, uh, I mean Lenin uh, identified, recognised the 1916 uh, rising as the uh, first modern socialist revolution uh, in Europe and in a lot of respects uh, what he did was uh, was based on uh, on uh, the experience of the Irish in uh, in 1916 uh, yeah wow so that was a bit of a template for the the Russian revolution oh look in a, in a, in a general sense yeah uh, I mean even well, even down to uh, I mean the uh, I mean clearly the uh, the Irish revolutionaries had no illusion that they could uh, win militarily at the time. Uh, their uh, their weapons were few and they were undermanned. Mm. Uh, they tried to bring more weapons in uh, from Germany, and uh, the uh, the person behind that, someone named uh, Roger Casement, Sir Roger Casement, to the British, he was a uh, a uh, had been a bureaucrat uh, of some renown. He'd been involved in exposing the uh, the corruption and oppression in Belgium, uh, in the Belgian Congo, by the uh, led by the King of Belgium, basically, uh, in the late nineteenth century, and was knighted by the British for that. But uh, equally, he was an Irish nationalist and uh, organised uh, supply of arms from uh, from Germany. And uh, which were uh, was uh, the codes had been broken, and uh, they were uh, they were um, taken before they landed. Yeah. Uh, and he was subject one of the people that was executed. But uh, they had uh, the weapons they had were fairly poor. They went back to the uh, they were imported about uh, ten years earlier. Mm. Uh, they were from the Franco-Prussian War, uh, whereas the uh, they were up against uh, literally thousands of British troops who, despite being in the middle of the largest war the world had ever seen, uh, Britain still managed to have a huge garrison in Ireland, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as a militarised police force. 
and uh, there was actually a, a split. A lot of the Irish volunteers, there was a countermanding order from the leader of the Irish volunteers not to turn out. So uh, in the end, it was really only Dublin that it happened in. A uh, number of uh, were trying to uh, to march to Dublin from the uh, from up in Donegal in the northeast. Mm. They were met by Connolly's daughter, uh, who told them, "Go home, it's over." Mm. But uh, Dublin Dublin held out for the best part of a week. Uh, the British needed to use a uh, a gunboat to uh, to pound the uh, to pound the rebels and the city into submission. Uh, in the end, they uh, they surrendered because they could see that the British were, uh, in a lot of respects, uh, taking out their vengeance on ordinary civilians. There was uh, one. In particular, prominent, uh, well, well-known case. There was a, uh, a prominent, uh, eccentric, uh, newspaper journalist, um, named, uh, she Skeffington, uh, and, uh, he was, he was, uh, shot by the British, uh, as a spy. All he was in reality was a, a journalist out reporting on the streets on what was happening. Hmm. Uh, there was a number of civilians shot basically because they were Irish. Uh, so the uh, the leaders uh, decided to surrender uh, rather than keep fighting because it was uh, they could they could see that uh, that uh, the that uh, the population was uh, was having retribution taken on it by the British because all the uh, the signatories to the uh, to the um, the proclamation uh, and one other, uh, they were they were uh, executed. The uh, the one other was executed for simply for having the uh, the same surname as his uh, his brother, who was a signatory. Uh, and in the in the process of the executions, the British, in their best traditions, chose to ignore all the basic uh, rules of war. One of them being that if uh, if someone's to be executed. Uh, they're in, and they're uh, severely wounded. They're entitled to recuperate before their execution. Uh, not, not James Connolly though. Uh, he'd been uh, shot through the ankle and uh, was uh, confined to a stretcher uh, right through his uh, through his trial. Uh, he was uh, taken out and uh, tied to a chair. Uh, wow. To be executed rather than uh, being being allowed to uh, to recuperate. So the British have always had a mechanism for uh, making sure they could uh, they could uh, impose indignity upon indignity in, on the Irish. Hmm. And, and of course uh, they lost the. I mean, in, in very basic terms, they they lost the fight. Uh, but uh, the uh, the overreaction of the British in terms of the executions under martial law uh, created so much outrage that uh, by the time the uh, most of the uh, the revolutionaries who'd uh, who'd fought had been uh, sent away to prison uh, in Britain, uh, predominantly in Wales, by the time they were released later in the year and uh, and came back, uh, they were regarded as heroes. Mm. And from that was built the uh, the war of uh, independence that uh, ultimately saw the uh, the British uh, 
leave um, in the uh, in the early 1920s. I'll leave uh, leave 26 counties, and uh, that was uh, that was a battle led by um, veterans of the uh, of the rising, and also um, a number of uh, veterans from the First World War, Irishmen who'd signed up prior to 1916 and were fought for Britain. Um, one of them, uh, General Tom Barry, he was a corporal in the British Army, but uh, he was a uh, very prominent, um, what then became the Irish Republican Army, uh, IRA leader in uh, in the southwest of Ireland, in uh, in uh, Cork, and right down they fought right down through Waterford, uh, using the, the tactic of what they called the flying column, of um, hitting British troops and moving on, um, basically guerrilla warfare, living uh, among the community that supported them, mm. and that's what uh, what literally fought the British to submission and had them uh, sue for a uh, a peace and the creation of what uh, became the in the first instance, the Irish Free State, and unfortunately the Civil War that uh, followed that because, uh, as with all these things, some people decide that we need to uh, we need to uh, take what's on offer now because we can't get anything better at the moment and others want to fight on for, uh, for, uh, for principle. Mm. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, Friday Breakfast, and we've got Barry Goff on the line talking about the... Easter uprising in Ireland a uh, hundred years ago. Now, what's there's a bit of an Australian connection. There was some pretty pretty serious uh, solidarity from Australia. Oh, look, there'd been look, the uh, the um, Irish Australians in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, lots of people talk about the American connection with New York. Uh, well, certainly. Uh, the Irish community in Australia, and particularly in Melbourne, uh, per capita, raised far more money to uh, support the nationalist struggle uh, struggle for independence uh, per capita than uh, right through the late 19th century uh, than was the case in New York. And, of course, that was in, a, uh, in the context of marvellous Melbourne and uh, having the, an economy that was... Uh, probably stronger than anywhere else in the world for much of that late 19th century period because of the uh, the wealth of, uh, of gold in this state. Mm. And uh, then uh, irony of ironies, uh, um, as I said, uh, the rising happened on the, uh, the eve of the first anniversary of Anzac Day, mm. uh, by which time a number of Australians who'd been... Uh, at Gallipoli, were uh, either re- recuperated from uh, injuries or were on leave uh, in Britain, um, having you know been in service for uh, a couple of years by that stage, and uh, those of Irish extraction, not uh, unsurprisingly, uh, you know many of them took a trip across the Irish Sea to Dublin to uh, have a look where their forebears were from, mm. and. Uh, Found themselves uh, in uh, in uniform in Dublin uh, at Easter, and of course were uh, were called up into service um, by the British, uh, as you'd expect, I guess, and um, were involved in uh, in fighting the uh, against the uh, against the nationalists, and uh, one of them in particular. Uh, and there was a report on this in the uh, the Age on Saturday. Some listeners may have seen uh, 
was uh, actually uh, shot one of the uh, the first of the uh, the uh, revolutionaries to be uh, to be um, shot in battle. He was a young 19 year old uh, bicycle me- messenger, and um, yeah, he was uh, essentially sniped uh, by uh, uh, an Anzac. Uh, from uh, the upper stories of uh, one of the buildings overlooking um, Stephen's Green uh, while he was taking messages to the GPO. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, that was a, a story that only came out here a couple of years ago. Uh, and the reason it had not been known about until after the uh, Aussie concerned had passed away is that um, he was obviously very conflicted about... Uh, you know, mm. duty and uh, effectively being forced to, into a situation to have to do something. And uh, it was only found out about any uh, when they discovered uh, papers and uh, a silver cup that had been given to him by the king mm. uh, under his bed uh, up in Queensland. He was a, uh, he'd been a ganger on the railways up there. Mm. So... So he clearly wasn't... Yeah, uh, very poignant story. ...wasn't proud enough of the silver cup to want to show it to Oh, anyone. no, he was... Hmm. Well, you know, he Dude, was, he uh, he was conflicted, you know, two, oh. two concepts of duty, I guess, and, hmm. and did what I guess he, he had to do in that context uh, as, a, as a serviceman. Uh, and, um, yeah, it was... Uh, Lived with carried the carried that uh, that oh. I guess what we now call post traumatic stress yeah. um, to his brain. Mm. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. All right. Um, now, just briefly before we wrap it up, uh, what's what's the current situation in in Ireland um, in terms oh, it's, of uh, politically? It's uh, it's very uh, it's very fluid at the moment. Mm. Uh, there's uh, been huge um, adverse impacts on uh, the population because of the uh, global financial crisis. Mm. And there's just recently been an election and the party that had been in power, um, uh, Fina Gale, uh, which is a, a very, con- very conservative party, mm. uh, have lost their majority, and uh, both them and the major opposition party, which is slightly less conservative, um, Fina Foyle. So uh, that's like the equivalent of the <laughs> of, of the Labor Party here, or, or would you oh, take no, offence to that it's comparison? Not, it's um, oh look, it's I mean both those parties came out of the Irish Civil War. Fina Gael, uh, the uh, descendants of those that were the pro-treaty forces. Fina Foyle are the descendants of those who were the uh, the uh, anti-treaty forces, but subsequently agreed to participate in the uh, in the uh, the Free State, uh, and later they were responsible for creating the 26 county republic. So it's uh, yeah, I mean it's a, it's not analogous to Australia. Um, Finnegar were in coalition with the Irish Labor Party. I mean, the, the sad, uh, the sad, uh, laconic joke uh, of Irish politics is that the uh, the Irish Labor movement went into the GPO in 1916 and uh, unfortunately never came out. Uh, unions, uh, as we know them here, uh, would make the uh, Australian Labor Party look uh, uh, look very uh, very militant. 
Hmm. However, there is at the moment a uh, a rebirth of the labour movement um, in Ireland. Uh, there's some very strong trade unions, uh, one in particular, uh, Mandate, uh, which covers the uh, equivalent of, I guess, the... Uh, the, shop, the shoppies union in Australia, okay. uh, it's uh, a very militant union. It's uh, winning real gains for its members, and uh, one of the one of its activists that uh, that uh, I keep tabs on on, on Facebook uh, uh, was in fact uh, one of the uh, members of our uh, our program on uh, on 3CR. Oh, nice. Um, Represent. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, there's been a huge campaign there over the uh, what's called the right to water. Mm. Uh, water in Ireland has been charged for um, through general tax revenue, mm. and out of the, the GFC, uh, Fine Gael um, put on a charge uh, of metered water, which of course, uh, I mean, in an Australian context, we think, well, where's the where's the drama in that? But uh, in Ireland, the, Ireland's uh, not Australia, yeah. Like Australia is exactly. the most arid, populated country yeah. on the planet. Yeah. You get a fair bit exactly. of rain in Ireland. Uh, yeah? I mean, there's uh, there's no shortage of water in Ireland, hmm. uh, and uh, so that was a huge pole of attraction for uh, grassroots campaigning right through the uh, recent election. And as a result of which, there's been a number of independents elected under the uh, right to water, right to change banner. Uh, there's uh, a number of um, already existing uh, left independents over there of uh, various persuasions that have come together in a, a loose coalition. Mm. Sinn Féin has uh, significantly increased its numbers and is now, in effect, the uh, the major opposition party. Mm. And Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are dancing around each other uh, saying, oh, no, we can't possibly go into coalition, but, uh, in fact, that will be the outcome. So you will have a conservative government uh, with, a, for the first time ever, a strong progressive uh, opposition com- mm. uh, combined of, uh, of left independence and, uh, and Sinn Féin. Mm. So uh, for the first time, uh, politics in Ireland will have moved behind and beyond... Uh, you know, well, whose side did your grandfather fight on in the Civil War? Which is, you know, where Irish politics has been stuck for 60-odd years. Mm. Mm. Exciting stuff. Oh, it is. It's very exciting. And, of course, mm. uh, right on the eve of, uh, on the, eve of uh, the, um, the uh, centenary of, uh, of the, uh, the writing. So mm. uh, there's still people out there fighting for the Republic of uh, Connolly and Pearce. And uh, interestingly, the government had its official uh, centenary celebrations of, uh, last weekend at mm. Easter rather than at the date. And it was amazing. They, and people could probably find pictures of it on, on YouTube. Uh, rather than having a, a public ceremony, they, uh, they put up uh, barriers around the GPO where the ceremony took place and uh, you needed a special uh, invite to get in mm. and the only way the uh, the general public could see it was on uh, on TV. Mm. I mean, talk about a, you know, some... I mean, where would, where would you see things so orchestrated? North mm. Korea is about the only place I can think of these days. But, it's the uh, official celebration of the people's uprising. Exactly, yeah. <laughs>
by invitation only. If your name's Bob Geldof, uh, you, you get uh, you get a ticket. Uh, even the descendants of the revolutionaries had to apply for a ballot uh, to uh, to see if they could get a ticket. Mm. Uh, many of them, uh, many yeah. of them chose to not, but will be there on at the uh, the people's uh, commemoration on the. Uh, the 24th, that uh, myself and a couple and a few other Aussies are going over for. Yeah, nice. All right, yeah. well, we better wrap it up. But, uh, okay. Thank you so good much, stuff, Barry. It's, no uh, yeah, good to have a chat with you, and uh, yep. we'll, uh, we might get you back on at some point in the future for, for another update about... Well, I'll uh, be, be uh, pleased to. When I, when I get back, I can give you some first-hand uh, impressions of uh, the situation over there at the moment. Yeah, thank All you right. so much for that. It was great. Have a good time okay. there. Okay. Keep it still. So. Okay. Cheers, Jacob. Bye. All right. Uh, yes, Barry Goff there on the uh, the rising in Ireland. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio. Yes. Well, welcome back to Green Left Week. Um, Green Left Weekly Radio. Ah, so we were talking about this before, but um, Zane sort of um, prevented me from talking about it too much because we wanted to get, have some time for it. But, you know, um, anyone who's heard of, like, the recent sort of Daily Telegraph um, sort of scandal, or if you call it that, um, yesterday um, in the University of New South Wales where um, the Daily Telegraph made a big uproar about some controversial um Controversy that the University of New South Wales were participating in. Apparently, they were controversially instructing teachers to refer to the settlement as an invasion, um, and um, but which, of course, this is based on research um, produced two decades ago. Um, so yeah, they were basically they made this sort of uproar, and there was this sort of cover with um, a, a photo of Captain Cook, and then they were claiming with the claim that um, this guy, um, this guy, um, this guy which is called titled Teaching the Teachers, Using the Right Words, uh, Using Appropriate Terminology for Indigenous Australian Studies, um, that um, teaching um, that, that Australia was, um, was actually invaded, not settled, was seen as a controversial, was seen as a controversial issue to the Daily Telegram. Um, they made all this, um, the, all the sort of usual rallying cries of political correctness gone mad and so on, and... Um, of course, there was oh, clearly, you know, for all the listeners I've read, there's clearly nothing wrong with um, teaching Australian history what it is. Essentially, Daily Telegraph were, you know, were a participant in sort of this kind of racism to deny that that calling um, that teaching Indigenous history as the right way and accurately portraying um, that Australia was actually invaded, not settled, is actually yeah a real you know thing, and you know. Um, New Batilda did a bit of a report on this, and you know the use of um, that basically the Daily Telegraph was in favour of created this sort of uproar. And you know, in response, um, you know Ken Canning, the lead candidate um, for, for um, federal candidate, Senate candidate for Social Science, described you know the Daily Telegraph's um, condemnation of the universities and New South Wales diversity toolkit guidelines for appropriate language describing digital history as the usual type of nanoboy, you know. News Corp.com slams the term invasion referring to James Cook's arrival in 1770. Does the Daily um, Telegram, you know, seriously think that Aboriginal people laid out the red carpet for him? Does it really believe that arriving here uninvited and killing 
innocent Indigenous people in order to access land was actually settlement. Type of report. This, you know, he Ken Canning was quoted to um, of saying, you know, this type of report is what is holding this country back from coming to terms with its own history. Senate candidate um, Charlotte, who was also who's also running for Socialist Alliance, um, also Charlotte said the 1992 Marbo decision overturned the fiction of terror not. Notice, which in turn acknowledged Australia was invaded good on the university, you know, for bringing this out in the open. Okay. So, yeah, Zane, I just gave sort of a bit of a summary of um, the whole Daily Telegraph kind of sort of controversy about teaching, um, you know, stu- um, university academics and students to to teach Indigenous history accurately and, you know, not mm. saying, not portraying Australia as a country that was settled, but actually one that was invaded. <laughs> mm. And it was a convenient lie for the British to claim terra nullius because if they had acknowledged that there were people living here that would have affected the entire process of invading and colonising the place and it was convenient for them to treat Aboriginal people as flora and fauna. Uh, What I found interesting is that another story that was in the news this week was about someone in Newcastle broke into someone's house to burgle it and the people were home and this person ended up getting beaten to death. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's unheard of that that you might have that fight or flight response and beat someone up who's entered your house. So, but I just think it was interesting that there was all these people out on social media saying, "Oh, you should be allowed to kill someone who breaks into your house," and this real visceral kind of thing of like the sanctity of of your own home should never be broken. And it's it's entirely legit to beat someone to death who's who's broken into your house to try and steal stuff, and yet and 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 the Daily Telegraph is plugging this line, and yet at the same time it's like if if your entire country gets invaded and burgled and people get shot and poisoned and jailed in massive numbers as part of that. Invasion. You're not allowed to call it an invasion. What's yeah. the oh, it's like oh, it's and and the course disconnect. And there's like this sort of um, argument that you know, oh, you know, Aboriginal and Indigenous people should just get over it. You know, it happened a long time ago. Yet they still, yet this is actually, it's in, it's really, the Daily Telegraph is like a, a major newspaper that lots of people read, and it's um, and it's pushing this, you know, incredibly racist narrative because you know the effect. Aboriginal people still feel the effects of the invasion and dispossession today, and it's mm. you cannot just say it happened years ago. Therefore, we just get should just get over it. Of course, there's there goes in this sort of um, another form of hypocrisy, and of course, um, no, no, um, the the Murdoch Press, Daily Telegram, Daily Telegram, especially, are always adamant about how we should, you know. You know, we should respect Anzac Day, um, you know, because they, and yet that is something that also happened a long time ago. You never see, we should never, at least we forget, apparently, because, you know, Australian soldiers' lives were apparently more, um, more of value than, than Indigenous lives. Mm. Lest we forget the Imperial Wars, but mm, get over it regarding the, uh, the colonial wars of, of him invading this country and those who, who resisted and fought back. Hmm. Uh, just when you think the Daily Telegraph can never be more horrendous, it, it just comes out with more bile and, and like 
real racist, yeah. horrible rubbish. Uh, there's a bit of a debate on whether w- which one's worse, the um, Daily Telegraph or the Herald Sun. Um, Sydney, um, people who live in Sydney try, um, insist to me that um, the Daily Telegraph is worse than the Herald Sun in every way. But, of course, it is a bit of a semantic gig because they're both really terrible pa- papers. <laughs> so, this is Friday breakfast. Now... A, uh, a pretty amazing story has just landed on our desk. Uh, Lee Rhiannon has deposed of Richard Di Natale as leader of the Australian Greens and announced a radical policy to take to the federal election. The Greens are proposing to spend $125 billion per three-year term of direct uh, investment in publicly owned wind and solar farms. Uh, so Rhiannon has said this announcement means that uh, if we get re-elected, we will be able to build publicly owned wind and solar farms and we will be able to get to 100% renewable energy within a decade, within three three-year terms federally. So uh, that's pretty amazing and uh, it's really like good news, I reckon, because that... Um, yeah, that more kind of conservative parliamentarist element represented by the, the Di Natale faction, um, not heaps down with their style of leadership. But uh, Lee Rhiannon, we know, is a staunch community activist who's who's been involved in the grassroots for, for many years. So uh, that's really exciting to see, uh, yeah, that change of leadership in the Australian Greens. And it's really exciting to see them backing direct public investment in in renewables so yeah wow oh um, that's a pretty shocking story because i didn't actually uh, had heard about it until you announced that saying yeah no i just it's uh gone around the the newsroom this morning there's like media releases just come in so wow (laughs) amazing all right um, we should uh, get to the the activists' calendar. Um, save the CSIRO. There is a rally happening tomorrow, 12 noon, until 2 p.m. That is at the State Library at the corner of Swanston and Latrobe seats in the city. Uh, CSIRO announced it is acting. It is axing 350 climate scientists. Malcolm Turnbull and his ministers are stopping CSIRO of uh, stripping CSIRO of the funding it needs to continue critical research with their latest attack on climate science and environmental research compounding the untold damage already done to public science. Join us to rally against these savage cuts to both the CSIRO and the future of our climate. Uh, it's pretty poignant coming in the same week as we've just had news of the extensive bleaching and and death of the Great Barrier Reef. Scientists have been telling us that this was going to happen for years. As the as the globe warms, that that's kills coral. Coral is very sensitive to heat and once it gets too hot it the stuff dies. So there's um a lot of runoff up up in the reef too, but I think it's warming in particular. It only takes the slightest bit of warming to uh, to kill off coral. So this is the largest living organism on the planet, and it is well and truly being killed off by climate change. Uh, and it's scary stuff. It's uh, it's 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 really sad to think that decades from now, people who, who 
you know, little kids today, uh, they're not going to get to see the reef. They'll get to see isolated little pockets of vibrance amongst a massive coral graveyard. So, yeah, the CSIRO does excellent uh, world-leading research into climate change, what's happening, how it's going to have different impacts here and elsewhere around the world. And, of course, the CSIRO, they're up in my hometown, Newcastle, there's, there's the uh, Renewable Energy Centre there. CSIRO also do world-leading research into renewable energy, and given the political will, we could have a beefed-up sort of arena or similar public uh, agency like this announcement that's just come out of the Greens office today of $125 billion per three years of direct investment in renewables, the CSIRO could play a really important role in commercialising and mass-producing renewable energy technologies if, yeah. if the political will existed to make it happen. So we've got to, we've got to protect what we've got. It's a, it's a really important base yeah. for climate action. Yeah, so um, there's actually it's going to be a big weekend for rallies because there's going to be another rally actually on Sunday, um, make Federation Square a racist and fascist-free zone. Um, you know, Sunday, one year ago, you know, that, that was when the sort of first sort of reclaim Australian um, United um, Patriots um, front sort of burst on the scene, um, holding a rally at Federation Square in Melbourne. Um, they were met with op- opposition, you know, progressive anti-racist um, groups and individuals. So this um, this Sunday will be kind of like a sort of one-year anniversary of that. I must join, you know, join join with other kind of anti-racists to mark one year of opposition to the extreme right and to, um, together say yes to refugees, no to Islamophobia and no to um, fascism. You know, fascists will always lose in Melbourne. It's going to be at 1pm at Federation Square. Though just one sort of interesting sort of detail with that is, um, as far as I know, in terms of the current sort of situation with that, I'm not sure if there's actually going to be any UPF or Reclaim sort of Australia were actually holding a rally at Federation Square. I there's um there's well, good riddance to There's yeah. a bot of this get bad. The bad news, however, is there's apparently going to be sort of a halal food expo on that weekend. I'm not sure where it exactly it is. If um, but they apparently that's where UPF and Reclaim Australia are apparently going to move. So activists will probably be um, you know, doing a counter rally in response to that. Um, mm. So, but so keep tuned for information. Yeah, keep an ear to the ground. I'm sure there'll be announcements here on 3CR about any of those sort of snap counter-protest actions, and of course, keep an eye on social media. Um, the next rally will be on Tuesday. Um, code blue for um, health health workers. Um, basically, it'll be to it'll be for. Um, on, it'll be at 12.30 p.m. at the Royal Children's Hospital. And it'll basically be um, to a campaign sort of rally to help um, re-A HPA members highlight how prehistoric and outdated our wages and classification structures. And it'll be, you know, it'll sort of be kind of like, not. it'll be completely, probably the opposite of probably the um, the, um, the the rally mentioned before because it's going to be more of a community kind of kind of thing. It would short, sharp and sort of fun media kind of event. They're encouraging everyone to bring in your kids, bring your partner, bring your co-workers. Just make sure you're there to send, help send the message to the state government that it's time that our wages and classification structures upgrade. We want a classification structure that will give us real career prospects in the public hospital sector and deliver on the decent wages we deserve. Do the next one, thank uh, I might actually go and get our next guest on the line, oh, yeah. Phil Monsour, who I understand you went and saw last night. Yeah, yeah, he was um, he was performing with um, Rafif, Rafif um, the Yellow Dar. I don't know. 
not sure if I'm getting her last name correct, who's like a Palestinian poet, so spoken word, so performance artist. And yeah, he, he, um, him and her were, they were absolutely amazing. Loved it. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to give Phil a buzz. So if you want to keep going through the activist news, mm. activist calendar. Oh, next cut. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the next, um, there'll be a public meeting on Tuesday, the 5th of April, at 6, oh, on that same day, 6 p.m. Um, basically, there'll be a public meeting on, um, on the anti-nu- uh, anti-nuclear for, you know, Tuesday, April 5th is for many people in Australia. Um, nuclear weapons are not a distant abstract threat, but a lived reality, a persistent source of pain and suffering, contamination and distortion, and com- Indigenous communities um, bear the brutal this um, ongoing scourge. Um, due to, you know, um, due to the being on, on um, being on an island that, uh, in the Pacific Islands and rain hydrogen is due to radioactive contamination caused by nuclear testing. Um, so essentially this will be a public meeting on that and we'll have guest speakers such as, um, uh, Abika Anjan Madison, um, Sue Coleman Hasslin and yeah, it will be at Drill, um, Hall 26 Ferry Street in the city. Um, on Thursday, the 7th of April, um, Green Left Weekly will be doing a fundraiser of um, Michael Moore's latest film, Where to Invade Next. Um, it will be um, it will be through it will be a group booking through the Cine Nova, and bookings are essential. You'll be able to find information on where to book on um, on the uh, on the in the Green Left Weekly. Um, there will also be on on that same Thursday, there will be at the New International Bookshop a film screening of This is a Cop, um, basically telling the story of the European Union um, confrontation with the Greeks to raise the party in um, 2015. It will be at 7pm, entry by donation, New International Bookshop, 54 Victoria Street, Carden. And also in Footscray, which is where I live, um, so, um, there will be a public meeting on Friday, um, the 8th of April, Women, Arts and Politics, What is a Woman Artist? So it will be um, five artists, um, Jesse Deanne, Megan Cope, OK Hian Chan, Christine Little, Baby Gorilla will be... Um, will be fearless, speak up, work together, consistently make sure by building from the historical... Uh, oh, yep, of... Um, Oh, sorry, of feminist and women's art shows, which for four decades have either been directly or indirectly addressed concerns of sexism and arts. It'll be at 5.30pm, Friday, um, Friday, 8th of April, Footscray Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street, Footscray, and, or, and it's organised by the Footscray Community Arts Centre. You are listening to Greenleaf Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on... 3cr.org.au Greenleft Radio is brought to you by the Greenleft Weekly newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206 For new subscribers it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Alrighty, well, welcome back. You are tuned to Friday Breakfast on 3CR, and this morning we have got Phil Monsoor on the line. Phil is a Brisbane-based musician who has been doing a tour, and uh, yeah, um, Phil's a more political artist with songs about... Um, 
yeah, union um, union campaigns, Palestine refugees, amongst other things. So, uh, yeah, welcome, Phil. Well, good morning. Welcome, Phil. This is um, Jacob. I was I was actually at your performance last night, and um, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> How did that collaboration happen? Does she does she live in Palestine? So this is a the Palestinian um, struggle is a is an important issue for you. How, how long have you been uh, writing music, and has that been a, a sort of a thread in your music for uh, sort of since day one? And your, you said your her- heritage is from the Middle East. Where, where in particular? Um, my family is from Lebanon. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. And so, do you do you visit there as well? Do you um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, I have a, a large extended family there, and I guess um, um, Lebanon has a fairly tortured history uh, as well. It's very close to um, occupied Palestine and. various assaults by the, by the modern state of Israel as well, so um, I guess um, uh, I share a lot of the concerns and interests of the thief as well in, in terms of uh, how, how the experiences of ordinary people play out in places like Lebanon and um, Palestine 
what do you think of uh, what's been happening in, in Syria? Um, Syria is a great tragedy. Um, hmm. My, my um, family really is actually very close to the Syrian border in Lebanon. And they've had um, many thousands of, many, many thousands of refugees uh, camped around their villages for the last um, three years or so. And <clears throat> it's quite a high part of the world. It's very cold. Hmm. Uh, it, it's a great tragedy and um, in some ways a complex tragedy for um, people to get their heads around, but um, in the end, um, you know, the situation of many millions of people has been, uh, the lives of many millions of people have really been destroyed, and you could see that those people sat waiting for some sort of settlement in Syria, and I guess eventually they just got up and started walking towards Europe, which is um, what we're seeing play out as what they call a refugee crisis currently. Mm. More like uh, people are getting the country absolutely bombed to bits and need to get out of their crisis. Yeah, it's an unbelievable mess. Mm. Um, and we've got a song here next year in Jerusalem. What's uh, yeah? What's um, I, what's that song about? I, I um, it's tempting to do a lot of songs that are about some of the great sadnesses, and I do those, but I also try to write material that is positive. Um, uh, a lot of the work I do is um, hopefully you know, encouraging people to organise, um, to take action, but also to have hope that one day, um, one day things will change and um, there will be a free Jerusalem again, and uh, the people of that area will... Um, have their rights restored, whether they be exiled, whether they be under occupation, or whether they be citizens of um, uh, the modern state of Israel, they'll have their rights restored and able to live and you know, live with the dignity of other people, you know, that, that most people wish to live on. So I guess the song next year in Jerusalem just uses that phrase to say that um, you know, one day it will come when those that wall in that Palestine will be dismantled, um, and people will have the right to return, and uh, um, I hope to see a lot of people in Jerusalem when that happens. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's so uh, so important to try and maintain hope in the in the face of adversity. I think musicians and artists have an important role to play there in trying to keep that keep that flame burning, the flame of hope.
And uh, so just finally, where can where can people find your music? And where are you off to next with the tour? Uh, we head up to Sydney. We've got um, the final show for the We Teach Life tour in Australia. Um, and then uh, about a month after that, we're touring Ireland. And we have some dates across the UK as well. Um, once again, just promoting that CD. Um, my work and Rafiq's work are both available on CD Baby. Okay, I'll uh, I'll post a link to that and uh, to your website as well yeah, on the on the Green Left Facebook. Word. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks heaps for uh, having a chat to us this morning, and uh, yeah, I hope the the gig goes well uh, in Sydney and the the tour of uh, abroad as well. Break a leg, as they say in the industry. Thank you. All right. Phil Monsoor there. Cheers. Thank you very much. Uh, Welcome back. Sorry, just some technical issues there. Um, So, you're listening to Grain Life Radio on 3CR. And next, we are going to talk to someone about the um, occupation of some public housing in Bendigo Street, Collingwood. Yep, and it's happening right now, as far as I know. It's happening, and they need your support. All right. So, I will just get... So, on the line, we have Kate. Uh, this Kate's not her real name. We're just respecting a bit of anonymity here for the activist community. Uh, welcome, Kate. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. Uh, thanks for speaking with 3CR this morning. So, That's okay. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about the, uh, the the squatting of these vacant properties that were um, set aside for East West Link, which is no longer being built. Yeah, so the houses, there's um, actually about six houses on the street, Bendigo Street, it's a very small street. Um, okay. And there's six empty houses that had been previously compulsory acquired by the state for the East-West Link um, when the East-West Link was being proposed or planned. Um, and since that time, uh, the government, I guess, tried to sell, sell them back to owners, which some people chose to do, but most still remained empty. Um, they also promised about 20 of the houses to go to Magpie Nest and the Salvation Army. Um, so that's happened. But with the remaining properties, they're just sitting here empty. And some of these houses have been empty for nearly two years. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess we just decided um, with the housing crisis and with winter coming up so soon... Um, yeah, we were going to occupy them to try and make a point about the lack of public housing and the need for public housing in Melbourne. Mm. 
uh, basically. <laughs> for sure. And there's an article in The Age today um, saying that there's about 1,200 homeless people in Fitzroy, Collingwood and Richmond and right. more than 30,000 people across Victoria. My figures were about 25,000 across Victoria, but that might be more. Mm. Um, yeah. And there's also, on any given night in in um, Victoria, there's 80,000 houses that are empty. So, you know, we could house the homeless population in Victoria over and over again in the houses that nobody lives in. Mm. So this is also kind of part of the point <laughs> yeah that's crazy it's uh yeah and it's a situation that's seen in in other developed countries around the world too i think uh there's a whole bunch of homeless people or people on public housing waiting lists and then also a massive amount of empty buildings yeah insanity it is a little bit <laughs> Particularly when, you know, Australia is such a rich country, there's no reason why the, the state can't just, you know, fix up the, what needs to be fixed, get people in there. Hmm. You know, with no, at, at a rent they can afford or at a very minimal rent. Hmm. Um, so, how can, uh, how can people support the squat and how do, you, how could you see this potentially spreading to other, Parts of the um, city we've got growing. massive attention already. Also around this area in Collingwood was a lot of the East West Link protesters and activists that still um, live around here. So they've given us their full support. We've got support from um, a lot of different groups. A lot of the neighbours and the residents in the street have come and given us donations and packages and food and, you know, if we need anything. You know, so, so the local community really supports us already. Um, we're, we're kind of feeling like we're going to stay until um, either the government tells us what's happening with the houses or until the houses are being going to be fixed up to be used for uh, public housing. Um, that's our intention. So... Yeah, you can come and support us. By, we're, we're setting up breakfast now, so we'll be having breakfast and coffee and stuff just out the front today. Um, you can support the Homeless Persons Union either by giving donations um, or you can check out their media. Uh, there's a website and a Facebook and um, all this information will be being updated constantly. So you can also support that way. Okay. And that website yeah. is hpuvic.org. Yes. Okay, and I spoke to another person involved in a squat last night, and they said that the police had contacted you and said that they were going to kick you out, but then they didn't kick you out. What What happened there? Um, so that was the first night when we were occupying a different house on the street, and we were really unsure how to proceed because we weren't sure how the police were going to react, but they seemed also to be extremely unsure and they were working um, from orders coming above them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did say that at, at some point that this was an illegal occupation and that if we didn't move that we could potentially be um, arrested for trespass. So, I mean, that's potentially um, a, a risk. Mm. However... 
I tend to think that probably won't happen. And I haven't seen, you know, there's been police presence. I think we've had undercover cops come and visit and um, they've sent letters to everybody in the area saying that there's a protest occurring in Bendigo Street. So they've been around, but they haven't come to talk to us today and they don't seem to be threatening us with anything. Okay. So, yeah, from now I'm just going <laughs> to... It's long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. people should probably keep their ears to the ground and keep keep an ear out for any snap protests. Yeah, that might need to you know, and they've given support. us a list of... Sorry. Oh, just like in case people need to get down there in numbers to support the squat and, yeah, uh, stop the police from trying to, I don't know, kick us out. Yeah, but, I, I, yeah, I don't think at this point they will, um, but that's always a possibility. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Yeah. And uh, were you at this meeting last night? There was a public meeting? There was a public meeting. Um, so last night at 6 o'clock, I guess it was just everybody um, who had, from the union, anyone who, who had participated, um, and we invited anyone else from the public to come. So people that work around in the area, a lot of local residents, a lot of people that work for housing or homelessness, um, organisations, um, even Jolly and some the Greens as well, you know. So it was just, I guess, um, the housing crisis and, yeah, the point of um, what we're doing, but also how and, and what we want to occur, you know, within Melbourne, within housing in Melbourne, particularly public housing in Melbourne. So that was a really successful, actually. Mm. And there's such a shortage of public housing. And uh, did, did anyone comment at the meeting about plans to basically privatise the existing public housing stock? Because um, I've heard that that's a thing too. The yeah. state government wants to palm off the operation of public housing and kind of privatise Yeah, well, I it. feel like that's what does happen, yeah. Right now, like the state will acquire buildings and does own own housing, but they very rarely, you know, they either give it a, give it away to um, make it community housing or give it away to organisations like the Salvation Army or other charities to manage. Mm. You know, where, where then the the requirements for the tenants who live there are different, or there's you know they might be a bit more expensive, or they might have to. Um, attend programs run by the people who manage houses and stuff like that, which is what we would like to avoid, you know, because um, homeless people, people, you know, that need housing have very different needs from each other. They, You know, it's hard to, um, I don't know, it, it's... Hmm. We would prefer it if people didn't have requirements about, you know, their mental health or their, you know, issues in order for them to get to receive housing. We don't see that as something that's kind of fair for people. Mm. But, um, yeah. yeah. It kind of defeats the whole purpose of of housing for homeless people when you create barriers and hoops that people have got to jump through to get into it. Yeah. It needs to be easy and, and accessible. All right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, everyone should get down there. Bendigo yeah, Street. Yeah, come on down. We've got coffee on now. Actually, I might <laughs> go down now, actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and we've got tons of food has been donated. So thanks everyone for supporting us. Too. Yeah, and, and keep donating, keep supporting. 
All right. Yep. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kate. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you down there. That's okay. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks. See ya. All right. And that's us for the week. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Green Enough Breakfast. And stick around because coming up next is Beyond Zero Emissions Radio once again. Yeah. See you, Jacob. Yeah. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for thanks for listening. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call one 800 634206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.